Our gracious Father, we thank you for the invitation that you give us to abide in you. Jesus told us that if we abide in you and your love abides in us, God, that we would be able to pray and you would answer. You also told us that if we don't abide in you, we can't do anything, which is fair. Because apart from you, we can do nothing. Whether that's trying to teach your word or to listen and understand, God, we need you. May your spirit be our guide. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we saw Elijah's major victory over the false prophets by the power and will of God at work in him. After this astounding victory and the execution of the false prophets, Elijah prays and God brings rain upon the land. Now Ahab goes home and tells on Elijah. And Jezebel swears that she is going to kill him. That's the first couple of verses here in chapter 19. And Elijah runs for it. Now, I don't, I don't know what's worse, Jezebel threatening to kill him. Ahab telling his wife on the prophet, Babe, can't imagine what Elijah did. What happened, honey? He killed all my prophets. I'll take care of it, sweetheart. Which we're going to see her do later with, uh, was it, uh, it's not Nabal, it's, um, oh, uh, Naboth in chapter 21, Naboth's vineyard. He whines because Naboth won't sell him his vineyard. So Jezebel has him killed and gets him the vineyard. I'm like, dude, at least fight your own battles. What I can see is a lapse of faith. The beautiful thing about a lapse in faith is that such a lapse is not the end of our faith or the end of our relationship with God or the end of our usefulness to God. But we must remember that Elijah is just a man like everyone else. But this is the type of person that God uses. We have the same spirit and the same power of God at work in us, like Moses or David or Elijah or Peter or John or Paul and so on. God uses ordinary people who are humble and surrendered to his will to do extraordinary things. It is interesting to note, though, that Jezebel is used in other places within, uh, as John Mark Comer says, the library of Scripture, as a representation of evil, right? I mean, a lot of people have a legacy, but how would you like it if your legacy was a uh, representation of evil? One example is Revelation 2.20. Jesus, uh, speaking to the church there, says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, what are the chances that there was actually a woman named Jezebel there? It's much more likely that this is speaking of really her being like the personification of evil later on, especially in relation to sexual immorality, uh, because both the worship of Baal and the worship of Ashtoreth um, involved sexual immorality. So with all that, chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. 
And when he saw that, he's like, listen, woman, I got God on my side. I just wiped out, you know, 800 and some people. What are you going to do? It doesn't say that, does it? When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. And he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. That is, that is very different, isn't it? In verse 40 of chapter 18, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them. Chapter 19, verse 4. It is enough. Now, Lord, kill me. I'm done. I'm no better than anybody who came before me. Big, big difference. So he runs down to Beersheba. And then he goes another day's journey. Uh, And remember, a day's journey back then was roughly the distance you could walk if you started early in the morning and went until supper time. So it was about 20 miles, give or take. Um, And he sits down under a broom tree, which is another name for a juniper tree. And he prays for God to kill him. His fear shows his lack of faith. We must always remember that fear and faith are mutually exclusive. They cannot inhabit the same space. Perhaps what led Elijah to this place of despair is that he thought after what had happened that Ahab, Jezebel, and all the people would truly turn back to the Lord. I'm kind of thinking that's what happened. He figured he had this great spiritual victory. Ahab saw it. Ahab's going to go home and tell his wife. All the people saw it. And the people helped gather the prophets so he could execute them. And and I'm thinking somewhere in the back of his mind, he's like, yes, after all this time, look at the people of Israel are going to return to God. Things are going to be different. And what could have been a few hours Instead of full-blown revival, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And he runs. And this causes Elijah great spiritual, emotional, and mental distress, which I'm going to use as a jumping-off point for a few minutes. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, Paul writes, We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we so that we despaired even of life in psalm 94:19 david wrote in the multitude of my anxieties within me your comforts delight my soul a disservice that i think the quote unquote big c church has done over the last generation or two is to place a horrible stigma on mental health Uh, and often insist that spiritually mature Christians do not have mental health problems or that all mental health problems are demonic, which we talked about on Sunday, and that is not true. And they place a stigma on it that getting help for a mental health issue is somehow unbiblical or unchristian or shows a lack of faith. I call this a disservice because I know that vast numbers of people have never gotten the help they needed because of these stigmas, both inside and outside the church. Here we have three scriptures. One speaking of Elijah, 
where he wants to die. One of Paul, where he despaired of life. And one with David, where he was filled with anxiety. And these are folks that we call heroes of our faith. But they're human. And as human beings, they went through depression, anxiety, crippling fear, emotional despondency. And I'm pretty sure when Elijah says, you know, kill me, he was serious. And that's suicidal ideation. Even when Jesus was in the garden, he struggled in his humanity. In Luke 22, 44, it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly than his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Uh, the word for agony means struggle, but it comes from the Greek root for anxiety. Now, I am not claiming that Jesus had mental health issues. Um, not by a long shot. Just that in his humanity, he struggled. And I can say without a doubt that David, Elijah, and Paul all struggled with mental health issues as well. So why do I bring this up? And I'm going to throw this out there. I actually, this is about the next three minutes. It's going to be very hard to listen to. Since 2020, right, since the COVID pandemic, suicide has increased by 40%. It is now one of the top 10 causes of death for people between the ages of 10 and 64. It's the second leading cause of death for people between the ages of 10 and 14 and 20 and 34. There is approximately one death by suicide every 11 minutes. About 17.5 million people have been suicidal in the last year with about 2 million failed attempts. Additionally, just under 50 million people successfully committed suicide in 2022. 25% of the U.S. population has been diagnosed with a mental health disorder. Uh, PTSD, depression, and anxiety are among the top diagnoses. Uh, this jumps... Are you ready? This one is crazy. 25% of the U.S. population has been diagnosed. But among college students, 73%. 73% of college students have been diagnosed. And an estimated 50% of the U.S. population will be diagnosed with some sort of mental health disorder in their lifetime. Over 54% of those diagnosed never receive treatment. And there is no way to tell how many go undiagnosed and untreated. But if the other statistics are telling, the number is probably staggering. As a result, right, because it gets better, uh, as a result, coping mechanisms like substance abuse, pornography addiction, media and social media addiction, increases in risk-taking behavior are on the rise at a ridiculous rate. Are you ready for this one? This is, this was the most astounding, right? All of these are bad. This one shocked me. And it takes a lot to shock me. 93.5% of substance addicts, 93.5% of substance addicts, that includes, uh, you know, drinking, drugs, uh, pornography, anytime you are using something to create a dopamine release in your brain, 93.5% of them had some sort or have some sort of mental health issue. 
0.5. Then we add the lack of health care resources, the cost of mental health care, and it has made mental health a crisis in our nation. I've actually thought about getting my counseling license. Um, you know what the going rate for a therapist is? A therapist who has less education than I do. 240 an hour. $240 an hour. How many people have $1,000 laying around that when their health care doesn't cover a therapist, that they can spend $1,000 a month to see a therapist? It's insane. Now, we talked about this a lot on Sunday, but it's worth reiterating that while mental health issues can have a spiritual component or a situational component, having a mental health issue does not mean you are not a follower of Christ. While the enemy may use one's mental health as a playground, mental health does not mean you are possessed with a demon. Seeking treatment for mental health, including therapy and pharmacological treatments, are no different than seeking treatment for any other illness. And I believe that we, as followers of Christ, need to lead the way in removing this stigma from the church as a whole and from society. Failure to do so will continue to be catastrophic. There. Give me a moment to exit my soapbox. And we'll pick up in verse 5. And as he lay and slept under the broom or juniper tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Oreb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the God of hosts, the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. So God sends an angel, right? He lays down, he takes a nap. God sends an angel, taps him, says, get up, you need to eat something, and you need something to drink. And there it is, right? Cooked, he has, a, has a, uh, a bite, has a drink, and he goes back to sleep. So you can only imagine how exhausted he was, right? He ran all the way uh, from uh, Mount Carmel to Jezreel. Then he ran from Jezreel to Beersheba and then went out into the distance and I'm sure he was pretty tired because this all happened in like 24-hour period of time or less. So he, he takes a nap, he eats, goes back to sleep, wakes up again, eats again, and the angel says, I'm gonna, you're going to go on a journey for 40 days as far as Mount Oreb. Now that was a long journey, 260 miles. It shouldn't have really taken 40 days. It should have taken about 11 or 12 days. Um, but he may have been walking slowly, or God may have taken him in a circuitous route. Um, and he was miraculously sustained by that meal. Upon arrival, God asked Elijah a simple question. Elijah, what are you doing here? And what's his response? You know, I've done everything you've asked. I've done a really good job, too. And... 
The people won't listen and they broke your covenant and they killed your prophets and I'm the only one left. I don't doubt for a moment that he was crying. I'm thinking. I'm just thinking. It's interesting how Elijah talked about Israel breaking the covenant with God when that covenant was established on the very mountain where he was standing. I do find that. Uh, I found it interesting. But now he claims to be all alone. Here, I'm going to throw out another statistic that's real fun. I don't, I don't know. I just had fun researching this week. Um, one of the worst experiences that I personally have as a pastor is feeling alone. And I know, like Elijah, that God is always with me. But I can't tell you how often I do feel alone and the effect that has on me. So I decided to do some research. 65% of pastors report, report feeling lonely and isolated. Now, I am extremely grateful. I have the love and support from my biological family and my church family. And I'm not complaining at any of you or saying any of you are doing a bad job. It's okay if you yawn. I get it. <laughs> right? It, I, I'm not saying well, you guys need to do a better job. and all. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's a reality. Um, and I appreciate your prayers for it. Verse 11. Then he, God, said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he gives the same answer. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Oh, sorry. So God reveals himself to Elijah. And one of the things that I appreciate so much about this is that too many people want God to reveal himself to them in some sort of spectacle. Right? They want God, they want the earthquake or the tornado or the fire. And I'm not saying that God can't speak that way. We know he can I mean, he spoke to the children of Israel from the fire on the top of Mount Sinai, right? So I'm not saying that God can't do that or that he doesn't do that from time to time. What I'm saying is we want that, I think, because we don't want to shut up and listen. <laughs> I think what God wants for us to do is what we see happening with Elijah. He got alone. He got quiet. And he listened. When we do that, 
I promise he will speak to you. Now, if you want to be sure he speaks to you, open your Bible. Um, and like I said a few weeks ago, if you want to hear him speak to you audibly, read it out loud. Uh, but I think one of the biggest hindrances in our lives from hearing the voice of God is not his unwillingness to speak, but our unwillingness to listen. And when I wrote that down, I was a little convicted. Okay, I was a lot convicted. Because I started thinking about it. I've been encouraging people to practice silence and solitude. And over the last few months, uh, I kind of dropped the ball on it. I haven't been really doing that. So I worked on this last week. And over the last four or five days, I picked it up again. Um, trying to just sit there quietly before the Lord. Not saying anything. Not asking for anything. Not whining about anything. But just enjoying his presence. You know, and maybe my hands don't tingle and maybe the house doesn't shake and there aren't any bright lights except for the new LED lights I've strung all over our living room. Um, but besides that, it, is, it has just been so wonderful. I if even, I, this is how convicted I felt. I even started doing it twice a day. I started doing it in the afternoon too. Like I got you know, like three, four months where I slacked to make up for it. It doesn't work that way. Um, but yeah, I truly think, you, you know, I, so many people, well, I just, I just want to hear God speak to me. And, you know, my glib answer is, well, have you opened your Bible? But the real answer, the real question is, are you listening? The still, small voice of God asks the same question. And Elijah gives basically the same answer. And God will respond specifically to Elijah's complaint but he essentially tells Elijah to go back to work yes he was discouraged and he wanted to die but God's cure here after allowing Elijah a time of rest was to go back and do what he was created to do it was to return to the purpose for which God had created him now our job is to be faithful to what God calls us to do there's going to be times where we get discouraged there's going to be times where, like Elijah, we put in this great and fantastic effort and we don't see fruit from it. And we're like, why do I bother? Why, do, why, do I, why should I do this? Why should I, you know, take the time to, to do this, that, or the other thing when nobody's going to listen or nobody's going to show up or whatever? And that's where Elijah was at. And I'll be honest with you all, I've been there too. Once or twice. A week for the last 30 years. No, um, but I've, I've been there many times. I'm like, God, I don't, why am I doing this? But our job is never going to be the outcome. Our job is to be faithful to what God has called us to do. There will be times to rest. There's no doubt about it. And these times are beneficial. I love that God's answer for Elijah after he had sent the angel to wake him up the first time was to let him go back to sleep. Right? Sometimes we need rest. And he didn't send him right back to work immediately. Instead, he said, all right, I'll tell you what. You need a month and a half off. Go for a walk. And that's what he did. And then he speaks to him and he goes, all right, I hear you. Now go back to work. And God sends Elijah back and tells him to anoint a couple of kings and to anoint Elisha, Elisha as his successor. Then he answers Elijah very specifically about him being alone. That he has kept a remnant 
who have not served Baal. This faithful remnant meant Elijah was not really alone, and God has always kept a faithful remnant throughout human history, and I hope that will always that we will, sorry will always be part of that. Uh, in Revelation chapter three, the Church of Philadelphia, this is what Jesus says to them: "I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name." That's his commendation for the Church of Philadelphia. Not that they had done some great thing. Not that they were filling stadiums on, in evangelistic events or that thousands were flocking to their church every weekend or whatever. What did he commend them for? You've got a little strength. You've kept my word and you haven't denied my name. And you know, that doesn't seem like a lot until you look at our culture and you look at uh, many churches that are going far, far astray from the truth of God's word. Father, I pray that we would always have your strength, that we would keep your word, and we would not deny your name. So I want to point out the succession of events, and then we'll, we'll kind of finish up this chapter. Not kind of, we'll, we'll finish up the chapter. And what I did is I wrote down eight steps essentially step number one huge spiritual victory in chapter 18 and i think whenever we have a huge spiritual victory we should hopefully have the wherewithal to then begin praying against the attack that's going to follow because it's usually going to happen so huge spiritual victory number two threat fear and a lapse of faith Number three, depression, anxiety, discouragement, and a desire to die. You know, I, I feel better about some of the things I've prayed over the years when I study Elijah. I'm like, yep, I've been there. Number four, God's grace to let him rest. And the undeniable importance of a snack. But God's grace to let him rest. Five, God's call for him to get away by himself. Silence and solitude. Number six, God listens to Elijah complain. In honest prayer, we, you know, we started the prayer practice on Sunday. I don't know if anybody's had the chance to listen to uh, the podcast on it. Um, but one of the things they talk about in the podcast uh, that I think is so fascinating is you can't pretend when you pray. But we try, don't we? I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever been confessing sin to God and try to make it sound not so bad? Well, you know, Lord, I know I did this, but I've done that. Or been there praying before God and you try to sound all holy. All right, Lord, save the lost and, 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 and you know, and bring revival to the church when really what's going on inside your heart is that you hate everything that's going on around you and you want to crawl back in bed and you don't want to face the day. You see, God already knows. It doesn't do us any good. And that's why um, the Psalms are so wonderful. You can go back into the Psalms and you can look at what David said or, or any of the psalmists and be like, yep, Lord, I hate all these people. I hate what they're doing. I hate what's going on. 
I don't want to deal with it. I feel like I'm going to die. I can't sleep at night. Can you do something, please? Right? Those, I mean, that's kind of the, there's Psalms that are exactly like that. And that was David, a man after God's own heart. So over the years, over the last couple of years, God has started to free me up in my prayer life. That when I'm having a bad day, I just tell him in no uncertain terms. Number seven, that was number six. Number seven, God speaks to him and answers him. Right? But notice what happened. Rest, solitude and silence, honest prayer, and then God speaks to him. I like that. I'm not a formula guy. You guys know that about me. I don't like, all right, you got to take step one, two, three, four, and then you'll get what you get. Um, but if there's a formula, I think that's, that's, that's pretty close. And lastly, eight, God sends him back to work, which is my favorite. Luke 22, 31 through 34. Jesus is speaking to, to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, or when you have returned, depending on your translation, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. And I find that incredible. Jesus looks at him and he says, you know what, Pete? Satan's coming after you. Now, I've prayed that your faith won't fail. You're going to fail, but not that your faith would fail. And when you come back, then you'll be able to strengthen your brothers. And Peter's like, oh, that's never going to happen. And Jesus is like, yes, it is. That is exactly what's going to happen. And this is how it's going to happen. Now, I don't think any of us warrant Satan's personal attention. But I am sure that he wants to see our faith fail, and I am positive that our advocate and intercessor is praying for us that it wouldn't. A lapse in faith is not a failure of faith. And when he comes back, what did Peter do? Oh, for the rest of his life, the next 30 or so years before he was martyred, he strengthened his brethren. First Peter, speaking of, 4, 12 through 19. I know this is kind of long, but we don't have much left to go in the chapter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And I think this is very telling of our culture. Christians, for the majority of the last 2,000 years, expected persecution. They expected people to hate them. They expected the trials. They expected people to come after them. 
Christians today. Well, God, why, why is this happening to me? Why won't my coworker talk to me? Why, why am I, why did my car break down? Why? And, you know, and we can go on with list after list. And I'm not pointing fingers or judging. I've done it too. Many times. But the Bible tells us clearly, why, why would this surprise you? When you become a follower of Christ, you make a very bold declaration to the world, the physical world, and the spiritual one. And that bold declaration to the physical world is, I'm not going to be part of you anymore. I'm going to follow Christ. And that declaration to the spiritual world is, I've switched sides of this war. And you really think Satan's just going to let that go? You're like, oh, well, I guess we lost another one to Jesus. Let's work on someone else. He's not going to let that go. He's very stubborn. And I think he might be a little too competitive. He's already lost. I mean, you've got to imagine the, the arrogance of somebody who knows that they've already lost. Completely, utterly, totally, and they still keep playing. We shouldn't be surprised by these things. We should rejoice. Is that anybody's first response to something difficult? Praise God. I got cussed out for sharing the gospel with somebody. Woohoo! You know, the apostles in the book of Acts, when they started getting arrested and beaten and, and all of this, they, there's one passage, I think it's in chapter 4, it says, They went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Oh, man. Verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the 12th. Then Elisha, Elijah, oh, this is going to mess me up until Elijah goes away, um, passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother. And then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took the yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So I love this. He, he throws his mantle over him. Elisha makes a request. Can I go back and kiss my family? Um, which he does offers all of his oxen as a sacrifice, uses it as a feast to feed all the people around him, and then he follows Elijah and became a servant. Now, I find Elijah's response a little interesting. Um, he says, what have I done to you? And it can be taken a couple of ways, depending on who you listen to or who you read. One, it may be a rebuke for not following right away. Two, it may have actually been permission to go back. Yeah, like, yeah, okay, I, I got no problem. What, what have I got to do with that? Or three, it may have been permission to go back with an exhortation to consider what Elijah was calling him to. I kind of think it's that one. That's just my personal opinion. I am not sure. But I kind of think he was like, you know, yeah. What, what have I done to you? Go think about this. Go talk to your family. Think about what this means. 
And so what was Elisha's ultimate response? Well, he took his means of making a living and he killed it and set it on fire. I think that's pretty dedicated right there. In Luke 9, 57 to 62, Jesus said, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I find that really fascinating. Elisha cast off his old life to follow Elijah. And here we have three people. Two of them asked Jesus if they could follow him and then immediately did not. Right? We don't get the answer of the first one. Lord, I'll follow you. And he said, well, I don't have any place to live. And then we don't hear anything else. And the third one, Lord, I'll follow you, but let, let me go home first. And Jesus replies, we'll talk about that in a minute. And then the one in the middle, Jesus actually calls him to follow him. And he said, let me go first and bury my father. Uh, and Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. You go preach the kingdom. And people tend to take that like, wow, that was really mean. The guy's father is dead and Jesus wants him to just abandon the family. That's not what it means. When he said, um, let me first go and bury my father, chances are his father wasn't dead yet. What he really wanted was to wait for his inheritance before he followed. And in all three instances, the people didn't. So Jesus ends up this section, right? Because this isn't a parable. This is three people that he spoke to. Right? He, it happened as he journeyed on the road that someone said to him, right? These are three people that Jesus actually spoke to. He ends with no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, we all stumble and backslide and have issues. Um, I've had some major ones and a lot of minor ones. But there's never been a time since the day I gave my life to Christ that I ever wanted to leave him, that I ever wanted to be apart from him, though my actions have said otherwise. And I think that's the thing. God knows we're not perfect. He knows we're going to make mistakes. But are we going to keep moving forward? Are we going to keep following him even when it gets tough? So to close, we started off talking about mental health. I'm glad we did that. But I think there's a couple of lessons that I think we can take away from this. I say a couple, but there's five. <laughs> I wrote down five. Uh, first, we will all suffer failures in our faith like Elijah did. This does not mean we have lost our salvation or that God has given up on us, right? That's not what it means. It means we had a rough day or a rough week or a rough year or whatever it might be. It doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation, and it certainly doesn't mean that God has given up on us. Two, when we are struggling in that sort of situation, it's always a good thing to get alone with God and listen. Three, when it's time to rest, it's okay to rest. I think that's a good lesson. It's a lesson I need to learn. 
Um, I struggle to shut down. And uh, I need to be able to do it. Four, when it's time to go back to work, we need to go back to work. (laughs) Whatever that might be. And five, when we follow God's call on our lives, it means making him a priority, even if that means leaving other things behind. Now, I say that not because I'm saying, you know, that a married man or woman who gets saved should abandon their husband and children to go be a missionary in another country. I'm not saying that. I don't think, and I, I I don't think, I know the Bible isn't saying that. Or if you get saved, right, you're going to quit your job and spend 24 hours a day praying in the church until your house gets repossessed and your children are hungry and don't have new clothes or whatever it might be. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But what it does mean is there will be things that God calls us to leave behind, particularly our old life, our old way of thinking. Sometimes it might be a vocation, right? God will need us to change a vocation because what we're doing doesn't honor him uh, or whatever. I don't know. But the point is, is when God calls, we follow. Next week, in case Ahab hasn't gotten bad enough, he's going to get worse. Something to look forward to. Until then, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the lessons in your word. Thank you that we can look at the lives of those who have come before us. And hopefully, Lord, be encouraged. I know I'm encouraged. Because I know, as James said, that Elijah is a man like us, with like passions. He struggled just like the rest of us do from time to time. And so, Father, I praise you for your great grace. I thank you for your love. I thank you that you teach us and help us to understand you in a greater way. Pray that you'd be with us throughout the rest of our week. That you'd be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.